Welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report for February 9th, 2018. I'm Brian Cardell. This is the Daily Journal's weekly podcast considering salient appellate and constitutional law questions. Today, it's an appeal of the Northern District's injunction, the Department of Homeland Security's DACA rescission pens before the Ninth Circuit and, to an extent, before the U.S. Supreme Court. We'll be joined by Professor Zachary Price from UC Hastings College of the Law. He's a constitutional law scholar and a former attorney advisor within the U.S. Department of Justice's Office of Legal Counsel. He's written widely on issues pertaining to separation of powers and on the legal dynamics of executive duty, of enforcement discretion, and of federal non-enforcement regimes. Along those same lines, he most recently wrote a law review article examining what he says is a fairly under-theorized legal doctrine, that of when and to what extent folks who rely on federal non-enforcement regimes like the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals Program, should be able to pose a due process, detrimental reliance type claim when such regimes are rescinded. Professor Price says that existing legal precedent and policy considerations recommend a legal doctrine in this context that shouldn't uniformly recognize an inviolate reliance interest created by federal non-enforcement, lest the lines between our government's separate co-equal branches begin to blur and succeeding executive branches become helpless to reverse policy direction. He does say that a more developed, more granular doctrine could begin taking into account individual instances or certain categories of reliance that would merit greater protection, and he says the currently sparse doctrine will likely grow more robust as political discord in the legislative branch has and will likely continue to encourage more policy movement from the executive. As to the ruling from the Northern District, Professor Price, as he will describe, believes the judge there may have overstated the reliance interests of the plaintiffs in a DACA program that, when passed, was explicitly defined in order to qualify as a mere matter of enforcement discretion and not a substantive change in law as readily revocable. Thus, the judges demand that the Department of Homeland Security enunciate a more clear and substantial ground for the program's rescission, Price says, must be incorrect and should be reversed on appeal to ensure that a separation of powers deranging precedent that creates too high a reliance interest on federal non-enforcement is corrected. We'll get into all that in just a few minutes, but first, let's get to our opening brief. Well, the Ninth Circuit will soon receive expedited briefs in that DACA appeal. Its plaintiffs, as reported by our beat writer Nick Sonnenberg, have filed briefs before the High Court, urging it to rebuff the government's attempt to leapfrog the appellate court. The government filed a petition for certiorari prior to judgment in late January. Justices agreed to take the matter under consideration at their next conference on Friday, February 16th. So... We may know in a week or so the eventual venue where this appeal will have its airing and whether a final resolution will come before the High Court concludes its term in a few months. The Circuit Court rendered a few notable decisions this week, and one, a unanimous panel overturned a District Court ruling and held that the Outer Continental Shelf Lands Act provides that workers on oceanic drilling rigs more than three miles off the California coast are protected by the state's labor laws. In the case, workers brought wage and hour claims over their not being paid for long hours of off-duty standby time they spent on the rigs. Answering what it called a novel question, the panel articulated a three-step test to determine that California's more protective laws did not conflict with the Federal Fair Labor Standard Act and thus could apply to adjacent rigs under the Outer Continental Shelf Lands Act's terms. In ruling Thursday, a panel affirmed the propriety of a San Francisco ordinance limiting landlords' ability to buy tenants out of their leases. The city's Board of Supervisors passed the ordinance in response to what it viewed as an increasingly prevalent practice of landlords using high-pressure tactics and intimidation to remove tenants by way of buyouts, which had not been within the aegis of city regulations. The ordinance requires landlords to make various disclosures and file copies of buyout agreements in a city database and gives tenants 45 days to rescind any buyout contracts. Groups of landlords had challenged the ordinance on First Amendment grounds, among others. And, ruling on a loan objector's contesting of the global settlement reached between a class of former Trump University attendees and the now-defunct entity the president pitched as a school teaching the secrets of the real estate industry, a unanimous panel held that standard class-action opt-out language included in a notice sent at the class cert stage of that litigation was sufficient to make the objector here aware that she was required to either exercise or waive her right to opt out at that stage. The objector claimed the notice made it appear that she would have a second chance to opt out once the case had settled, but the panel disagreed. 
More broadly, the objector argued that even if the notice was not misleading, that general due process principles demand class members be granted an opportunity to opt out of representative actions at the settlement stage. But again, the panel's view differed. It found that one opt-out opportunity was sufficient for members in the type of class action at issue here, a Rule 23b3 suit. In our state's high court, a significant ruling Thursday answered the question of whether OSHA, the Federal Occupational Safety and Health Act of 1970, preempts state law claims for unfair competition and fair advertising that arise from violations of workplace safety standards provided by California law. An appellate court ruled that federal preemption did indeed preclude such claims, but a unanimous Supreme Court, in an opinion written by its chief justice, disagreed finding that the federal OSHA law set a baseline standard for workplace safety but allowed states to manage more exacting regimes, provided they were signed off on by the U.S. Secretary of Labor. Because in 1973, California's own workplace safety laws received that stamp of imprimatur from the Secretary, the court reasoned that unfair competition and fair advertising claims based on violations of the state law were not preempted. And at the state appellate level, among a handful of rulings, this week one second district opinion further refined the ever-evolving Prop 47 jurisprudence by ruling that a prior disqualifying offense, which prevents a Prop 47 petitioner from resentencing or reclassifying his conviction, need not have occurred before the crime a petitioner seeks to reclassify, but instead may have disqualifying effects so long as it's culminated in a conviction prior to the final ruling on an individual's resentencing or reclassification petition. And a ruling from the first appellate district also clarified a point of labor law, namely what the outer bounds are of Labor Code 226A, which requires employers to provide detailed, itemized wage statements that inform employees exactly how many hours they're being paid for and the rate of compensation applied to those hours. Here, a construction worker brought a putative PAGA claim alleging that his employer violated Section 226 by not providing the per-hour pay breakdown on his paycheck of wages that, per a collective bargaining agreement, were deposited into a general workers' vacation trust fund. Here, the appellate court affirmed a lower court's dismissal of that claim finding, based partly on the Taft-Hartley Labor Management Relations Act of 1947, that pay, such as that applied to the vacation trust fund here, is not wages under the Labor Code section. Our guest this week is Professor Zachary Price. He's a professor at UC Hastings College of the Law and formerly is an attorney advisor with the Office of Legal Counsel in Washington, D.C. He writes on matters of separation of powers, administrative law, and, and most pertinent to our discussion, questions of federal non-enforcement and the reliance interests it may create. He's here to chat about that latter evolving legal doctrine and how the Northern District's DACA injunction fits into it in a way Professor Price will argue is legally unsound. Professor, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much for having me. So you, you wrote a couple of weeks ago when the DACA ruling came down from the Northern District of California, a piece um, you know, laying out pretty strongly your opinion that, that the ruling as a matter of law was, was incorrect. Um, and so now a couple of weeks have passed uh, the sort of the conflagration of the, the government shutdown surrounding the particular issue of DACA has has passed a bit, but but still um, this question now is in front of the, the the Ninth Circuit, or as briefs will be, be presented to that court pretty soon. And I, I believe the Supreme Court is still con- considering whether to to jump in to this fray before the Ninth Circuit even hears argument. So I uh, just wanted to chat about you know your your thoughts on on that ruling and how you might see. Um, it going forward. Um, but to start, I'd like to touch on a few points you raised in a, a law review article from last year that uh, sort of that are a bit more general, but certainly bear on the question of the DACA case, um, dealing with the more general principles of when folks can rightly have a reliance on the federal government's non-enforcement of certain policies. So, for instance, um, non-enforcement of um, immigration laws that that could um, subject a class of folks like the Dreamers to removal. Um, I just wanted to touch on a couple of points you made in that piece. One being that uh, you know, I think you, you drive home in the article a point that you know people probably intuitively know, but that 
I think, are quick to, to gloss over, and it's just how high the, the legal risks are that, that folks um, are invited to take when the federal government sort of in, in, uh, introduces some non-enforcement, non-enforcement regimes, you know, speaking, uh, for example, of, of the DACA program or also um, directives the federal government has given in the past few years to, say, not prosecute um, medical marijuana type crimes. Uh, could you just walk me through, you know, the kind of what the legal freight is there when, when the government is inviting folks to take on pretty significant risks? So um, I do think non-enforcement has sort of risen to prominence as a feature of federal policy. Uh, it's um, in some ways surprising theme of the Obama administration uh, with the, um, his approach to marijuana enforcement and the um, immigration programs that um, are issues of uh, recent litigation you mentioned. Um, you know, in the past, uh, it's non-enforcement has been mostly deregulatory tool that Republican presidents have used to weaken the impact of various regulatory statutes. Uh, but now um, in the Obama administration, uh, we saw a Democratic administration um, uh, employing them as well. And I think that there's some features of the political environment that sort of might explain why we're seeing this. I think we've seen, you know, again, with the flip back to Trump, with the kind of some familiar deregulatory uses of non-enforcement, but also um, questions about how he would enforce, for example, the individual mandate of the Affordable Care Act before Congress uh, took that away in the recent tax legislation. Um, so I think we've got a, we've got a very polarized uh, political environment. Obviously, um, we're also in an environment where we have a lot of law on the books, uh, both in the form of administrative delegations and regulations, but also criminal statutes and so forth. And um, I think um, what we end up with is we have Congress is so polarized it could be hard for it to um, keep laws up to date even when popular preferences have changed uh, because of the difficulty forming uh, coalitions. And so it's a kind of uh, attraction for presidents to try and um, address those problems um, themselves by kind of moderating the effective laws on the ground um, to satisfy constituencies or even um, majorities in the country who are unhappy with the, the laws on the books. I think marijuana is a great example of that. I think most, most people would like to see federal marijuana law liberalized, uh, but that hasn't happened in Congress. We have these state experimentation going on, and so the Obama administration used uh, some kind of non-binding, non-enforcement assurances to um, moderate the impact of federal law. Um, I think for reasons we'll come back to, I think that kind of defining, there are a couple problems with this approach, I think. One is that the kind of defining feature of a non-enforcement policy is that it is not binding, that it's revocable, that the government can renege on the assurances that it's provided, and the marijuana guidance, for example, was entirely explicit about that. Um, so it's a legal matter, it's not binding, it can be revoked, it doesn't actually protect people against um, future enforcement, even for past conduct. Um, but as I think we also see with marijuana, um, as a practical matter, I'm not sure that the average person on the street really understands that. It's a kind of confusing situation with state law and federal law and um, this policy coming from the, the president, the Justice Department. And so I think it's, what we see quite dramatically with, with marijuana is a lot of people have engaged in conduct that is formally a very serious crime. I mean, sort of narcotics trafficking conspiracy or, or at least distribution conspiracy in places like Colorado. Um, and they're relying on this, this non-binding promise that the law, that enforcing against them will be a low priority for the federal government. And so I think what, if you put all that together, right, we have a kind of context where um, presidents may want to use non-enforcement in areas of political contestation uh, as a way of kind of unsticking uh, federal substantive law and uh, freeing up constituents to engage in conduct they want to engage in. Uh, but um, almost by definition, the, the, that's if that's the tool they're using to moderate the law, it's not 
providing a real legal guarantee against enforcement, uh, but nonetheless maybe inviting people to take legal risks. And we haven't really seen quite this with the Trump administration. I mean, the Trump administration, to its credit, has, has not sought to enforce the law retroactively, at least as a general matter, um, but has instead kind of revoked um, the marijuana policy, for example, to some degree, at least going forward. Um, but I think that if we keep seeing this kind of use of non-enforcement, there could be a chance at some point uh, if people might perceive it as politically beneficial or even kind of imperative to restore the rule of law after you have some some prior administration allows um, you know adopt some non-enforcement policy and then come in and try and restore the force of the law by enforcing it even retroactively. And so I think that's a kind of problem that these sort of policies set up um, that to some degree we're seeing play out now. Sure. Uh, and, and so, you know, the, the equitable legal principle of, of reliance, of course, um, comes into play here if, if folks are in a situation where control of the branch of government that executes the laws um, switches from um, one party or one person to uh, another, um, they can find themselves vulnerable to a non-enforcement regime that gets taken away, either in the marijuana context or um, more to the, the case at, at point here, the immigration context. Um, you mentioned that the kind of the ideas of, of reliance in the context of federal non-enforcement is, a, is an area of law that's not too heavily theorized, not a, a doctrine that's too deeply developed. Um, why, why is that? As I read your, your piece, it seems to suggest that by and large, when the government has said it's going to take a particular path, it doesn't necessarily very often tend to, to switch back in such a way that would, would capture folks that you know were, were only acting in reliance of the government's promises, but, but because of some of the political intransigence that you were just describing, that, that that's the sort of thing that could happen more often, that the U.S. government, maybe as opposed to being seen as one entity, uh, kind of more resembles two different governments, you know, sort of going back and forth when different parties take power. Just, I guess, describe that uh, point. Yeah, so I think... I, you know, we have lots of areas of law that depend on whether pervasive enforcement discretion and how the law is applied, and even um, sometimes policies about how enforcement authority is going to be exercised. And I think in general, uh, you know, we've handled that kind of practical reliance problem I mentioned, uh, for the most part through kind of informal uh, mechanism. So, uh, just as a matter of kind of good government practice, right? If people were relying in good faith on some assurance that um, from the IRS or whoever that that um, they could do something, um, even if it was formally non-binding, um, you might change the policy going forward. Uh, but the government wouldn't be likely to actually go back and and um, come after people retrospectively. And again, I think. To its credit, I mean, as far as I know, uh, again, at least as a matter of general policy, the, the Trump administration has more or less acted that way, too, right? It, it's revoked the marijuana non-enforcement guidance that the Justice Department has, but it hasn't, you know, adopted an affirmative policy of going after people for past conduct while that policy was in place. But I think that as if we keep seeing large-scale large policies in politically contested areas like this, um, that practice could could break down, could start to see a new administration feel like it actually has to um, uh, enforce the, vindicate the law even retrospectively to kind of assert the primacy of um, statutes that have been violated. Um, and, yeah, I mean, it's Depends what happens, right? But it would be impossible to imagine, you know, the Trump administration adopting some policy of, of that sort of a sort of non-enforcement policy in some area that liberals care about, like gun control or, or what have you, and and a new Democratic president coming in and um, people wanting to see uh, retrospective enforcement. So that that's the kind of dynamic that um, 
think we've quite seen yet, but but that I worry about could could happen, and then that will would require a kind of legal, but more direct consideration of legal reliance claim. And as we could talk about, there are some cases that recognize a reliance defense in in some circumstances where the government provides makes mistaken assurances of legality. Uh, there's a uh, defense in particularly the criminal context uh, with that structure, um, but um, I think in general, uh, the, it, that due process reliance theory can't really provide blanket protection for people who rely on non-enforcement policies, uh, because if it did, then it would really undo the central limit on that sort of policy, which is precisely that it's not binding, that it's revocable. Right. Yeah. And, and just putting that out a, a bit more as you sort of work to, to synthesize a, a doctrine that takes all this on board, um, you weigh kind of the two principal competing equities, the the due process one on the side of the folks coming to rely on um, government assurances of non-enforcement, and then, but then the other side, the pretty weighty consideration of, of separation of powers, and you say the doctrine in most instances kind of must tip towards that latter consideration just uh, to keep the Constitution um, in in proper form. Can you say why why that is is so? Yeah, so I, I think that's the right way to uh, frame the analysis. Uh, that, that's my the argument I presented in the article last year, and um, I think it's sort of implicitly the way the cases have handled it, uh, without quite framing those terms. So I think it's that really when you have this sort of situation like we have now, there's really a clash between two principles with constitutional underpinning. And so the one hand, right, as we've been talking about, there's a kind of basic fairness, fair notice concern that in real world terms, right, people may not, uh, people relying on, say, the Obama marijuana guidance uh, may not, you know, if they understood the full legal situation, they would appreciate the risk they're taking, but in kind of real world terms, um, there's probably uh, a lack of fair notice about the risks that they're taking, and um, uh, that, and therefore, a kind of acute, kind of intuitive fairness problem with with then coming after them retro- retroactively after providing that sort of non-enforcement assurance. So that sort of concern on the one side, um, but on the other side, I think a really important separation of powers limitation on executive authority is precisely that uh, presidents and executive officials can't eliminate or wipe away uh, substantive laws uh, just by fiat, right? So if Congress has passed a statute uh, prohibiting something or, or uh, requiring something, then that that's the law, and uh, executive officials may have discretion over how that law is enforced. In some circumstances, they may have delegated authority to interpret even what it means. Uh, but beyond those parameters, um, the statute is the primary source of law, and they don't have the authority to uh, eliminate it altogether. And this implicates some kind of deep background history. And in the um, old days, English kings claimed an authority to suspend statutes. It's meant precisely that, to cancel um, their legal effect. Uh, but our Constitution um, rules out that possibility. It requires the president to ensure that the laws are faithfully executed. And I think that means, among other things, that um, it's not part of the executive power to eliminate legal obligations. That's something that Congress has to do. And so how these two things fit together, um, I think the, the, the reason why you can't have an across-the-board uh, defensive reliance on non-enforcement assurances is that if you did, then it would eliminate that second second of separation of powers constraint. I think it would mean that executive officials, by inviting reliance on assurances that a law wouldn't be applied to them, they could effectively eliminate that law altogether. So I think that's the general rule. Um, and again, so I think if people are sympathetic to the Obama policies, it's important to appreciate why this constraint matters. Uh, think of situations the other way, right? Just think about the laws that President Trump might like to be able to free people within his administration or outside of it uh, from having to follow. 
if he could do that just by uh, indicating promising non-enforcement, then um, and and if that then created a reliance defense, then that would eliminate those legal constraints on um, on on people. So that's I think the the right way to frame the problem, and that's why there can't be a general due process defense. In general, the separation of powers limit uh, prevails over the fairness concern. But I think if you frame it that way, then you can start to see um, isolated circumstances where the balance uh, might tip the other way, where there's a kind of limited cost to that separation of powers principle and a kind of particularly acute fairness concern. And so from that point of view, one uh, one, one such limit that um, I've argued, I think, the cases support or that um, courts should recognize is that if you think about DACA, the, the Deferred Action Program um, at issue in the litigation you're talking about, the people had to apply for the Deferred Action. Uh, doing that meant, uh, so basically the way the program worked is if you um, met certain criteria, applied to the government, then you would get a uh, the sort of formally non-binding assurance that you would you would um, not be deported for a certain period, and and as an ancillary benefit, would get work authorization among other things. So people applying for this um, had to uh, disclose who they were, where they lived, right their their mm-hmm. um, lack of immigration status, and so while I think it in keeping with the general rule, I think the 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 program and even the deferrals have to be revocable. I don't think that means that the new administration could use the information people disclosed in this way um, to affirmatively target them. And I think that's because if you, if you think about that, the problem in terms of the balance articulated, right, you don't, the government doesn't need to use that information to indicate the um, primacy of the statutory law over um, the prior administration's enforcement choices. They can, it's enough that they're able to Cancel the prior assurances and um, and uh, put people in jeopardy of, of uh, immigration enforcement. Uh, but uh, on the other hand, there's a particularly acute fairness concern in the way that people in reliance on this program, uh, you know, disclose their uh, kind of, as one person has put it, put put an enforcement case in a silver platter for the government mm-hmm. against them. And so I think, in effect, the government shouldn't come out ahead by virtue of having invited that sort of reliance. Um, it can it can cancel the program, cancel the deferrals, um, seek to enforce the law against people. I mean, I, I think in any rational system, um, the people who benefit of the DACA program would not be priorities for enforcement. But um, the, the legal point is that that's enough. The ability to cancel the program and the deferrals is enough to vindicate the primacy of the statute over the enforcement policy, um, they shouldn't be able to take the extra step of, you, of kind of entrapping people who uh, provided this information and reliance on the program um, to make it much easier to um, pursue enforcement against them. Okay, I think that's all useful context um, to have kind of in the background here talking about the ruling, but it, it itself, though the kind of the reliance theme seemed to be um, part of the ruling, it it wasn't central, I guess, when it came to what specifically Judge Alsup um, found problematic with uh, the rescission of, of DACA. Just real quick, uh, I imagine folks are, are have have a good sense of this, but what was the uh, the the uh, Administrative Procedures Act claim here that that merited the uh, preliminary injunctive relief that was granted? Yeah. So um, as I understand the opinion, so the 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 challenge was seeking to prevent this DACA program from being canceled. So the administration has, uh, it's not revoked the previously granted deferrals, which typically lasted for two years, I believe. And um, it also even for a certain period kept renewing them, but it indicated that after a certain date, uh, it would that program would end, and then the deferrals would expire over time. So uh, the district court uh, decision um, held that 
the decision to terminate the program violated the Administrative Procedure Act and basically enjoined the government to continue operating the program, which is a practical matter, means to continue granting and renewing these um, uh, deferrals. So um, the theory, as I understand it, that the court adopted was that uh, this is a um, this was agency action to decide to terminate the program, and that uh, that this the action was arbitrary and capricious because the 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 stated rationale for terminating the program was uh, of the view the justice the justice department took the view that the program was unlawful to begin with, uh, and the court disagreed with that conclusion, thinks that the government had authority to adopt the DACA program, and therefore held that the decision to terminate it on that stated rationale was arbitrary and capricious. And uh, it felt that um, it was arbitrary. Uh, it's not entirely clear to me what work it does in the opinion, but it seemed to the court in both cases involving reliance to suggest that the government has um, a burden of justification in light of the uh, disruption of reliance that people have placed on the, op the operation of this program. And that was part of that. For both those cases to suggest that uh, the justification the government offered was not adequate. Um, given those reliant interests. Okay. Um, now, having read a, a good bit of your, your scholarship, as I understand it, I think you um, agree with the DHS's position that the, the 2012 DACA program might have been a, an overstepping of authority, might have not been a, a legal exercise of power. But but in your criticism of the 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 ruling, uh, I think you, you take the premise that Judge Alsop is putting forward that um, DACA was legal, um, but as I understand your criticism, it's that the judge here is sort of trying to have a um, cake and eating it too sort of situation where um, you say that, you know, if DACA was legal, that would mean it couldn't have been a particularly substantial change in the law um, because it wasn't exercised with sort of specific delegated authority, and that must mean it's pretty easily re revocable, um, but also and I think the judge makes that point that it's, uh, you know, it, it was legal because, hey, it was pretty easily revocable. But then he says, you know, later in, in making that APA ruling that you need to do some some more work. You have to show a, a greater showing when the agency DHS here is revoking it. And so that would sort of suggest the initial program was more of a substantive change. Um, could, could you unpack that a bit further for me? Yeah, so I think um, what I find unpersuasive about the analysis is that the theory on which the government had authority to adopt the program was precisely that it's just an enforcement policy, that granting these deferrals, um, even to this broad category of people and inviting people to apply for, uh, to get um, deferred action uh, with associate work authorization and so forth, was just an exercise of prosecutorial discretion. As you mentioned, I, at the time, didn't think that was persuasive. I think it um, kind of crossed an important line in terms of what the government can do with just uh, enforcement discretion. So although I'm very sympathetic um, to the dreamers and the policy goals uh, underlying the program, um, I think that uh, granting to a large group of people this sort of um, you know, formally non-binding, but but a kind of effective guarantee of non-enforcement uh, is goes beyond what um, officials should presume the authority to do. Just as a matter of um, prosecutorial discretion. But um, the the contrary argument, right? The theory the other way is that no, that's wrong. This is really no different from just, for example, a police officer not pulling people over for speeding, even though they're in technical violation of the law. This is just an exercise of enforcement discretion, a choice about how to allocate limited enforcement 
resources to set priorities for um, who's um, going to be targeted, who isn't. And again, to go back to the kind of structural separation of powers points we started with, um, the necessary entailment of that theory of authority is that the program can be undone, that these are not binding, this is not a binding change in law, right, the government, the past administration was conceding it didn't have authority to grant some form of uh, legal status to people that would be more durable, so that was the, why it was using enforcement discretion, but then that, I mean, as the policy, at least formally stated, the, the consequence of that is then that it is revocable. And so I think from if from that point of view, it um, the burden of justification on the government for terminating the program has to be pretty minimal. And uh, I mean, there's actually, there's actually an argument in the case that it shouldn't be reviewable at all. But even if the if it is reviewable, I mean, it seems like that it can't be a sort of de novo. Um, do I agree with you? Is so the government here is saying? We don't, we agree with critics that the program didn't have an adequate legal basis. Um, the court is disagreeing with that conclusion. But I think that in assessing whether that is an adequate reason, it, um, it, it can't be that sort of de novo review. I mean, here the, on the legal point, right? I mean, the, the court enjoined a closely analogous program. The Supreme Court, um, upheld an injunction with an equally divided vote. So at the very least, um, it seems like there are substantial legal questions, and it seems to be within um, the government, in this context, should be an adequate reason for the government to say, um, we aren't interested in continuing this legal fight. Uh, we we are want to take the view that the program was um, unlawful. And furthermore, even if they, if, if that's not an adequate reason, then it would be an adequate reason simply to say that this is, this was an enforcement policy and we've changed our, um, view about appropriate enforcement practices and priorities and we're switching it, um, on that basis. And so if, if that, if it's just a matter of getting them to say that instead, then it doesn't seem to me that, um, the review of their reasons is accomplishing anything um, very meaningful. Can you distinguish that there's a ruling laid out in, in Judge Alsop's um, opinion in, in Sino Motorcars versus Navarro is a, a Supreme Court ruling that originated out of the Ninth Circuit here. Um, it uses it because it seems at least somewhat on point where I, th- I think in that case an agency changes um, some uh, regulations or, or policy and and that change is, is struck down as um, not having given enough notice or I think based on uh, reliance grounds or, or the like. Why, uh, in your view, is that not a, a helpful case in this context? Yeah, so there, uh, the district court in, uh, cited the Sencino Motorcars opinion from a couple years ago. And um, that case, and there are some others like it, uh, do recognize, uh, so, so in that case, the, the court said that because People had relied on an apparent prior uh, legal understanding of the agency in adopting a new regulation, taking a contrary view. The agency had to at least account for uh, reliance interests built up around the last, um, the, the prior policy. I think the problem with that analogy in this context is that that case, and there are some others like it, are really dealing with a different problem, which is... Uh, in a, you have an administrative agency that has legal interpretive authority, and uh, so in that, it's, in that case, it's the um, uh, the Labor Department enforcing um, aspects of the Fair Labor Standards Act, and under uh, standard administrative law, the agency has some authority to interpret uh, what uh, the the broad terms of the statute mean in actual application. And so in that context, uh, you, you have kind of concerns about unfair surprise, about agencies. It, it, there are a bunch of doctrines to try and get agencies to um, articulate their understanding so that people know what the agency thinks is legal and is not legal. 
Um, but the, but those cases are operating in a context where the agency has interpretive authority to determine what is and isn't um, isn't legal. And so I think in cases like Encino Motorcars are dealing with situations where the agency appeared to have a view that certain conduct did not violate the statute. People a- acted on that basis, um, and now the agency is switching course uh, and um, we want to protect people's reliance on the agency's past view. I think what makes this case different is that the government does not, it can't, or at least it, the theory for the deferred action programs was precisely that the government did not have the authority, couldn't interpret away the, the substantive legal restraints and had to instead uh, act as a matter of enforcement policy. And I think in that context, uh, you just have that, that concern um, is misplaced because the key limiting principle on doing that, on using enforcement policies uh, to change the on-the-ground law where you don't have the authority to change the, the governing legal requirements um, is then that uh, the policy has to be revocable. Um, you, you pointed this out a few, a few minutes ago, but uh, maybe to chat about just a more concrete example of it, when you said, you know, folks that might be sympathetic and, and keen to um, have the the outcome that this court ruling brings, the continued viability of the DACA program, would um, come to be pretty alarmed were this the, this court's precedent, uh, you know, used in context where you have vindicated your reliance on non-enforcement in, in contexts that are kind of much different. I think there was one case you also wrote about from the past summer where um, there were some um, reliance interests um, in relation to some EPA non-enforcement of certain of the Obama era Clean Air Act rules, but but there the court didn't really um, you know, follow the, the the path that the Northern District uh, took when it said you know you, you can't uh, fully rely on um, not, not federal non-enforcement. Could you tell me a bit about about that case? Yeah, so I think that that I mean, look, the, these are there's a lot at stake for. Um, people's lives in uh, these policy questions, and um, I don't want to minimize that, and I think that, uh, you know, for people who uh, have the DACA beneficiaries, I mean, it's, it's quite understandable that um, the more, their personal considerations would override the general uh, legal concerns. Uh, but the points I'm trying to make, and I think you have to See that these are these are recurrent general problems of kind of separation of powers administrative law that arise across a range of contexts, and I think that uh, there's been not just in this case, but even in some other cases, there's been a kind of uh, understandable push to uh, get courts to prevent the new administration from undoing policies of the past administration uh, to kind of freeze in place policies that were adopted as a matter of grace uh, to kind of hold them in place uh, even once you have an administration that wants to um, uh, reverse course. So I think there are a couple of things to say about that. I mean, one is that um, you have to look down the road and I think the sort of uh, the decision preventing the termination of DACA is the sort of precedent that could easily come back to bite uh, liberals if down the road you have a new Democratic administration that wants to undo various Trump administration policies. Um, there are certainly many areas where the administration, either um, as a matter of express policy or as a matter of implicit practice, is not vigorously enforcing various regulatory requirements and statutory constraints. And, um, you know, I think people should be weary of, of uh, decisions that would complicate um, reversing course in those areas down the road. Uh, but also, in general, I think that uh, there's a pretty clear kind of general hierarchy 
um, the sort of rules of the road for how administrative laws work in these areas. And the basic principles are if you have a statute, right, it takes another statute to undo a statute. If you have a so-called legislative rule, a regulation promulgated with notice and comment uh, by an administrative agency, that then has the force and effect of law. It binds the agency, and uh, it takes another legislative rule, another notice and comment rulemaking to undo the regulation. Um, but then if you're outside of that world, if you're, if you're using more informal guidance or non-enforcement policies, um, with, if you're not going through notice and comment, then that those policies, the price is that they're they're uh, they are revocable at will. And I think that that hierarchy has proven important. Um, the, the I think the cases are referring to um, there were a number of uh, um, Obama era uh, environmental regulations that. Uh, the new administration more or less attempted to undo with informal policies, with not a due notice and comment rule, but just a kind of announcement that it won't be enforced so people don't have to comply with it. And courts have repeatedly invalidated those informal undoings because on the understanding that it takes a, a new regulation to undo an old regulation. But the parallel I'm trying to draw here is that that's precisely the same principle that's really at stake in the administration's ability to undo things like the marijuana guidance or immigration programs, because there it's this administration, um, it, 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 sorry, there it was the Obama administration saying that it could weaken the effect of statutes uh, by adopting non-binding, non-enforcement policies. Um, the reversibility of those policies is reflecting this background understanding that uh, if you, you know, it takes a statute to undo a statute, takes a regulation to undo a regulation, outside of that, if you have just an enforcement policy, um, that can be undone informally as well. And so I think these, these are principles that people who believe in regulation as something that, uh, you know, protects people, improves um, lives, restrains private power, then um, they should care about these kind of um, restraints on uh, hierarchy of legal materials and uh, informal undoing of legal restraints. Um, the limitations on an administration's ability to act in that way are things that people care about regulation should um, care about preserving. Okay, yeah, just, just one last one. Do you have any, any thoughts on how the, the path of this appeal might uh, might look? It seems like the prevailing wisdom is is in harmony with with your own. That this ruling seems to be um, on its way to to potential reversal. Do you think that might happen at the Ninth Circuit, or that it would get up to the U.S. Supreme Court? And and I guess one of the, the bigger concerns you, you raised in, in your article about this ruling is that uh, it, the fact that it might seem to be tinged by political ideology is the sort of thing that is worrisome and that it would tend to erode trust in, in the courts as an independent um, body. Um, I guess how salient to, in your mind of a concern is that at present? Is that more pressing than it has been in the past? Do, do things gotten worse on, on that front? Uh, I do I do have a general kind of systemic worry, uh, which is that I think that I think, you know, we're at a highly polarized period. Um, I think Americans, uh, you know, the great majority from both parties care about the law, about the rule of law. They understand that that's something that um, makes our country different from many places and is an important heritage. Uh, but as when we have, you know, Polarized, in the polarized political environment, when we have legal issues arising in politically contested areas, um, it can be hard to uh, to get an objective perspective on on what the legal issues are. And I think people ultimately do. I mean, everyone knows that courts, you know, judges have their political priors, but I think people also count on courts to be able to apply uh, general legal principles neutrally. And I think that um, it's 
kind of especially important in this moment for courts and I think to some degree commentators to try and uh, maintain that sort of objectivity because um, I think ultimately the authority the courts have, their ability to resolve uh, legal questions, to do things like enjoin illegal actions by um, politically elected uh, presidents and, and statutes enacted by Congress depends on uh, public understanding that courts are not just kind of uh, acting on the basis of policy preferences, but instead um, applying neutral legal principles. And uh, I think that kind of understanding is under some strain in the current environment, and I think it's incumbent on courts and uh, um, commentators to some degree to try and um, be as objective as possible about things um, so that we don't lose that um, at the middle of the other political battles we're having. Sure. Okay. Um, well, Professor Zachary Price from UC Hastings College of the Law, thanks so much for being on the podcast to unpack this with us. Uh, we'll see um, how it proceeds up the appellate ladder here. Um, th- thanks again. All right, sure. Thank, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. And with that, our program for February 9th, 2018 is complete. Thanks for tuning in. It's much appreciated. Hope you enjoyed the show. I'm Brian Cardell. I look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week.